0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Wavefront intensity has increased. Increased shield to 75%. Aye, nice, sir. Damage, Mr. Warf. Minimal, sir. Shields are holding. Ensign full about, go to warp two.
2: The gravitational distortion is too high. We can't maintain a warp field. Full shields, aye.
1: Captain, impulse power has been disrupted. The helm won't respond.
0: We couldn't get out either. Timothy, perhaps you and I should go below and get out of everyone's way? No.
1: Riker to LaForge, can you give me more power to the shields? Stand
2: by! That's what they kept saying. More shields. More shields. Accompany me, please. I want you to recall everything you heard people say aboard the Vico before it was destroyed. I don't know, just that. Just more shields. Captain, I've transferred fusion reactors four through nine into the shield array. That should double the shield strength.
1: Wavefront intensity has increased by an order of magnitude. Impact in three, two, one intensity is continuing to increase structural overpressure now exceeding 180 percent the i don't understand that should have been enough we could run the shield grid directly off the warp drive go ahead commander initiating warp
2: transfer pathways now diverting warp power to the shields warp power to the shields they said that too data i'm positive
1: Wavefront intensity has increased by a factor of 10. Contact in 31 seconds. Without additional power to the shields, the outer hull will not hold. The forge. Warp transfer
2: to the shields complete. That's as strong as
1: they're going to get. Impact in 15 seconds. Sir, drop the shields. That's suicide data.
2: Captain, drop the shields. Make it so. shields caused the increases in the wavefront sir we have been experiencing a harmonic amplification effect the more energy we dumped into the shield the worse the impact precisely that is also what destroyed the vico when timothy remembered similar procedures on his ship i initiated an analysis of shield output to wavefront amplification and discovered a correlation if we had transferred all that warp power to the shields it would have torn the ship apart
1: Data sensing? Navigation is coming back online. Full about One quarter impulse. Take us out of here.
3: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 11th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you. From now until noon. No, no, not right wing, you know that? It's just right. Will be alright. And welcome to the show t- today, where what you just heard was an economic parable, and I'll explain that a little later. But today on the show, Go stimulate yourself, origin of laissez-faire. We talk about stimulating the economy, good or bad. I want to tell you a bit about political party tax funding as well, and because it's a bit more than just a taxing proposition than a lot of people think it is. And, of course, are you lost on whose fault it is, the whole thing that's been going on in Canada's parliament late, lately? Was it a huge strategic blunder on the part of Harper? I don't think so. But first off in the show, I want to talk about where we are at now. 519-661-3600 is a number to call if you want to join us on on the air here and have any comments on what is going on in Canada. This week, I would like to expand on the two themes thrust upon us last week, what I called the Blockhead Coalition and the so-called bailout plans. Now, exactly one week ago from this very moment... I was sitting here at CHRW on the air at the same moment as Canada's Prime Minister Stephen Harper was meeting with the Governor-General to request a prorogue of Parliament following the reaction of the official opposition to an economic update statement. Now, I'm pleased to report that every prediction I made on last week's show, and you check them out yourself... With regard to Canada's parliamentary crisis, has already come to pass. Even though the vast majority of all our politicians and political pundits, professors, everyone were predicting the exact opposite, with very, very few exceptions. And I don't think they were seeing the forest for the trees. Even, Nick, even, you know, pollster Nick Nanos even pronounced, you know, Harper's lost his image as a Teflon man and he's miscalculated on his budget. And I hear this untruth said over and over and over again. And when I hear people say it, I go, you, I can't take your, your opinion seriously. You don't understand what's going on. But uh, I'll explain in intricate detail later why I don't think that's true and why, in fact, I think Harper's budgetary calculations were right on target and put him in a win-win-win situation now. But first, a word on our economy in the context of our parliamentary debate that's going on right now. I've, I've been joking around with people, I've been saying, you know, a prorogued parliament is a laissez-faire parliament, and that's what we've got from now until parliament sits again. And I'm reminded of the saying, no man's life, liberty, or property is safe while the legislature is in session, uh, which is unfortunately a profound truth. So with the prorogue of Parliament to the end of January, Canadians' lives, liberty, and property are at least safe until then. With Parliament and recess, this Christmas is safe. This is the best-case scenario for the economy and Canadians. I know some of you won't agree, but I'll make my case again as we carry on. Uh, though you'd never think so, given the frantic, uh, panic frenzy of urgency being promoted by the whole blockhead coalition and most of the media. By the way, nothing's changed since last week, since Ignatius has, has entered the fray, and I'll talk about that a little later, too. But over and over again, we, you know, everybody says, Harper's doing nothing. You know, They're all chiming in chorus, which is laughingly ironic for two reasons. One, Harper is doing something and has been doing that something since his re-election, and personally I think he's doing too much. And two, uh, so-called doing nothing is the best course of action on the economy, almost at all times, for governments of free societies. The the ideal of laissez-faire, far from being realized or practiced in any country, is exactly the right thing to do. And generally means a clear separation of the state and economics for the same reason you want state and religion to be separate from each other. And this brings us to the clip you heard at the opening of the show, taken from an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, called Hero Worship. And in that show, I don't know if you saw it or not, or you watched Star Trek The Next Generation or not, but most people have seen most of the episodes. And I could not help but thinking of that segment that you just heard, you know. And what happened there is you got the Enterprise trapped in this area of space where they'll you know, be hit by this big gravity wave or some such literary contrivance. As they attempt to defend themselves against that impending wave, they pump as much power as they can muster into the ship's shields, only to learn that that's exactly what another ship did before it was destroyed by the same wave. And we, the viewers, as we're watching this show, of course, we can see no possible escape for the Enterprise. No matter how much power they pump into those protective shields, they cannot survive the pending onslaught. In fact, as you heard, the more power they pump into the shields, the worse the threat seems to get. But to make a long story short, what they eventually discover is that their own resistance to the oncoming wave is what has destroyed the other ship. So instead of repeating the same mistake that the other ship made, at the last moment they counterintuitively realize, thanks to Data's process of observation and reason, that the solution to their dilemma is to drop the shields and let the wave pass unimpeded, which is exactly what they do. And while that gravity wave is still felt, it passes by with minimal damage, and the Enterprise is saved. Yay for the day. L'ess they say l'ess they fair saves the day. Now, had they, quote, done something, pumped terawatts of power into the shields, the Enterprise would not have survived. In fact, it was a first season uh, episode of Voyager in which they did the, the same kind of thing, where doing nothing turned out to be the best course of action. Now, that's the same principle that and, by the way, this is the same principle that is both elevating Harper in the polls, because he's done nothing, so to speak, quote, and lowering the, the the status of the what I call the blockheads in the polls, the other parties, because they've done something, quote. Imagine this. If the so-called coalition had not reacted to Harper's political agenda the way they did, in other words, if they had done nothing and just sat back, do you really think they would have created the resistance that they did to their own cause? Sound a little too Star Trek-ish for you? Shields up or what, eh? Methinks they doth protest too much. Now, of course, (laughs) the real crisis behind our federal parliament's current dysfunction is not the economy. It's not the war in Afghanistan. It's not the dismal state of Canada's military. It's not the critical and disgraceful state of our hospitals or health care insurance system. It's not the dysfunction of our state-run schools. It's not the gun violence in our larger cities. No, it's not high taxes. It's not runaway government spending. It's not about any legitimate government concern. No, the real crisis is the five-year-old policy of forcing federal taxpayers, whether we vote or not, to fund political parties on the basis of how many votes they get in a prior election. Bob Ray has called Harper's proposal to abolish the forced funding of political parties the end of democracy in this country, meaning by implication, of course, that until 2003, when the funding was first legislated by the Cretchen government, Canada must not have been a democracy up until then. So what were we? I want to know. I think Bob Ray owes us an answer on that one. Oh yeah, I forgot. We were a slightly freer country. So the democratic thing to do, of course, is to take over Parliament in such a way as to exclude the voters from the process. Especially when all the polls show that the public doesn't like what you're doing, then it's double dem- democratic. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Liberals are practicing democracy by ousting Dion and appointing their new leader, it's sort of in the same way. You know, This is the new democracy, mob rule by a handful of people. It smacks so much of opportunism and capitalism, it makes me sick reacted one angry listener I heard on a talk show on Radio 98 Monday morning. Uh, Sick is right. That's one confused and dysfunctional voter, but his heart's kind of in the right place. But to address all of the fundamental issues consuming that poor fellow would require listening to this show from its very beginning till now. When you associate capitalism with purely socialist philosophies and tactics, you're in deep doo-doo, and I think it's time you make an appointment with your political therapist. But this is the kind of contradictory epistemology that makes it impossible to resolve issues and determine who's right and wrong, and that's what I see going on out there. And that's just how the blockheads want it, because they opportunistically exploit the confusion of the very people whom they should be offering some kind of reasoned clarity to. Now south of the border, we've got U.S. President-elect Barack Obama, who's assured us that things will get worse before they get better, and he should know because he's going to make it so while markets soared on his announcement that the U.S. will spend its way out of the recession. Great news, huh? Things are going to get worse, worse for you and me, but better for the much wealthier-than-you-or-me losers in the market, whom we're all being forced to save. It's one of the most oxymoronic statements you can invent. Let's bore our way out of debt. If taxpayers and voters had a stock market, though, I'll tell you, it just dropped through the floor with Obama's announcement, but we don't have one, so we don't get to see our stock market announcement on a day-to-day basis. Now, interestingly, had Stephen Harper said anything similar to this, he'd be burned alive at the stake by the opposition, even though that's exactly what they wanted to hear. And that's one of the reasons that Harper wisely chooses to remain generally silent and say very little, because he knows that anything concrete you can say to them will be met with more hostile resistance than is possible if you don't give them anything to bitch about, okay? Trudeau was a master of saying nothing during electoral debates. Well, each specific policy proposed by the opposition would be a reason for a given number of voters to vote against that opposition, which is the natural process of electoral forces. People vote against. If you don't stick to that principle, you haven't got a clue what's going on in politics. And they do not vote for. And so uh, the best political strategy during election is to say very little and, and give voters not something that they can resist, like that gravity wave we were talking about. Now, dealing with the blockhead coalition is no different than dealing with the Taliban. You cannot negotiate with them, okay? They've made that very clear, and they continue to make it clear. They, they made it clear from before any of this started. And I'm going to take your hand step by step in a few minutes and t- explain to you exactly what happened in Parliament and whose fault this all is. But the coal- coalition exists for one purpose only, and that's to circumvent an election and deny us our vote and our say. If they were honorable and just, they would vote to defeat Harper in a non-confidence vote and go back to the polls. That's what you should do. But unfortunately, all the polls right now show that Harper would handily win a majority government if the election were held today. So in order to prevent voters from having their say on what they've been witnessing in Parliament over the past few weeks, a coalition is their only protection against the voter, and that's what they're doing. So now, I want to continue. I've got a couple of clips here. These are from... A week ago uh, today, yes, this, actually this happened just immediately after my show last week. I went home, I left the CBC. Um, uh, oh, sorry, no, these that's a later one coming up. These two, I'm sorry, are from the, that night when all the leaders put their tapes in, and you'll be hearing Leighton and Dion, but first Peter Mansbridge. But listen carefully to what they say, especially in light of what has happened in the past week, because this history is being erased so quickly and changed and given a new spin. It's just stunning, so I think we have to take a moment out, go back and revisit history. Amazing how we forget history, even when it's only 8 to 15 days old. We'll be back right after this quick break. Special.
2: Here is Peter Mansbridge. Well, hello from our national news headquarters, Canadian politics. Who would have thought it could be so utterly riveting for so many for so long? Well, we're about to witness the next development in this remarkable struggle for power. For the first time since he was sworn in as prime minister, Stephen Harper has formally asked the television networks for time to address the nation. He will be making his case for asking the governor general to shut down parliament earlier than expected. The official word is proroguing Parliament. He wants to stop the opposition parties from passing a vote of no confidence in his government next week. If that vote happened, the Governor-General would either allow an election or turn power over to a liberal NDP coalition supported by Le Bloc Québécois and led by Prime Minister Stéphane Dion.
1: Consensus is a great Canadian value. In this spirit, we Liberals have joined in a coalition with the NDP. We have done so because we believe we can achieve more for Canadians through cooperation than through conflict. We believe we can better solve the challenges facing Canada through teamwork and collaboration rather than blind partisan footing and hostility.
2: An economic storm, unlike anything that we've seen in a generation, is upon us now. And Canada must have a strong and effective government that holds the confidence of Parliament. Tonight, we do not. Tonight, far too many Canadians will lie awake not knowing how they're going to put food on the table tomorrow or pay the bills at the end of the month. And seniors are checking their pensions and their savings, and they're seeing the true costs of the crisis of collapsing markets. And in Canada, this recession has only just begun.
1: We share the frustration Canadians have about a political crisis that has been allowed to take prominence over the more important economic challenges we face.
2: Tonight, only one party stands in the way of a government that actually works for Canadians.
1: We believe that in these tough economic times, government has a role to play. Your government has a role to play to ensure that those who are doing their share for the prosperity of our country can continue to provide for the well-being of their families.
2: On election night, I committed to Canadians and to Mr. Harper that we would work collaboratively in a new minority parliament. And So in the days and weeks that followed, I laid out our effective ideas to stimulate the economy and protect and create jobs. I described them in great detail in speeches across the nation and here in the House of Commons as well. Jack Layton
1: and I have agreed to form a coalition, a coalition government to address the impact of the global economic crisis. The Bloc has agreed to support this government on matters of confidence. The Green Party has also has also agreed to support it.
3: Well isn't that good news? There's your coalition, even even counting in the Green Party there. You're back, listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and we'll be with you from now till noon. You can call in 519-661-3600 if you've got any questions or comments, or, of course, you can always email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com, and, of course, check out our website at justrightmedia.org where you can get an archive of all the past episodes, which, by the way, you'll see some changes being done to the website a little bit, over, probably over the Christmas holidays there, but uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about that in the future. Just the facts, ma'am, as uh, Who was it that said that in Dragnet? I forget. He, uh, one of the cops that used to go to the door there all the time. Let's go through the scenario of what has just transpired in Canada and separate all the crumbs, get rid of all that and get down to the essentials. Here's here is basically a diarized version of what has happened. Wednesday, november nineteenth, okay? Governor General reads the throne speech. Liberal leader Stefan Dion in responding to that speech says, quote, as there is nothing new in this in this throne speech, it would be irresponsible to bring the government down on this, end quote. And quote, it would be completely irresponsible to have an election now, end quote. Thursday, November 27th. That's one week and one day later. Economic update and the throne speech vote. Now they didn't vote that first Wednesday. They just read it then and then they were going to vote, vote on it on the Thursday. And before that vote, the economic update was read. And immediately after Flaherty delivered that update, a vote was taken. The speech from the throne was passed with Liberal Party support. Well, hello. Okay, they passed it. Done deal. Ah, but no, you can never trust a Liberal even after he votes on an issue, okay? Friday, November 28th, one day after the Liberals voted in favor of a throne speech that lacked a so-called, quote, economic stimulus and eight days after Stephan Dion went on record to say that his party would support the throne speech, the Liberals, in complete contradiction to what they had both said and voted for, prepared a motion of no confidence in response not to the throne speech, but to the economic update. You see, now that's the way to get off the hook. Oh, no, we supported the throne speech, but we don't support the update. And what was their stated reason? It was the lack of a fiscal stimulus plan in the economic update that forced them to bring a non-confidence vote. And yet, on two separate occasions, they openly supported and voted for a throne speech that also contained a lack of fiscal stimulation (laughs) and no economic update. That part of it was exactly the same. They weren't any different. So twice they voted for the thing they said they were against, and the third time they said no. So what happened to change their stance so abruptly, as if you don't already know? But let's look at some of the evidence. November 30th, okay, Layton's reported a conference call printed by the Sun Media, Kathleen Harris, National Bureau Chief, Ottawa, and this was uh, a conference call that took place the day before, November 29th a reported transcript of Jack Layton speaking with his caucus, okay, speaking to other uh, NDPers and stuff, about an alleged alliance with the Bloc Quebecois. Quote, Let's just say we have strategies. This whole thing would not have happened if the moves hadn't been made with the Bloc to lock them in early, because you couldn't put three people together in one in three hours. The first part was done a long time ago, I won't go into details, and he doesn't, end quote. So I'm thinking a long time ago. We're talking November 29th, the day after the vote. That means it was going a long time ago. I don't know if he meant just the day before. Uh Uh-uh. Here's another quote. The negotiating process, I am, by the way, in very regular touch with the leader of the Liberal Party and the leader of the Bloc, frequently every day, End quote. Every day? (laughs) Frequently? For a long time? Even before the economic update was ever heard? And then here's another quote from the same phone conversation. Quote, we're in the middle of a very historic time, and we're playing a key role in it, in some ways a catalytic role actually, because as we think back, we'll realize that nobody really imagined it would be possible for the Bloc Québécois, the Liberal Party of Canada, ever to enter into any kind of a discussion around the future of a country, and it turned out that we were the glue and spotted and prepared for the opportunity and had taken the steps that we were required so that when the opportunity arose, this guy uses the word opportunity all the time and then he complains that people call him an opportunist, which was when Mr. Harper made his disastrous strategic error by not providing stimulus to the economy, end quote. Now, I'll give Jack Layton this. At least he can... say that his complaint with the Conservatives is about the economy because he did not support the throne speech at any point. But clearly, his plotting a coalition against the Conservatives was started way before the political party funding policy was mentioned and before even the throne speech came up. I can find no reference uh, whatever to political party funding in the plottings of Jack Layton. Uh, This tells me, indeed, that the plot was hatched a long time before any announcement of political tax, tax funding cuts although they played a key role. Um, and the, whole, the architect of this whole deal was Jack Layton and the enabling compromiser, I was talking about compromise, those are the guys that let evil in to the rest of us, uh, was Stefan Dion. And here, is, uh, here again is Layton in his conversation, quote, you can see where Harper's going here. He's going to say it's the socialists and the separatists and the opportunists getting together, you know? Those are their talking points, and so we just need to push back, End quote. Now, this from a guy who just used the word opportunity several times in this very transcript. Uh, This is a self-confession. It is the socialists and the separatists and the opportunists getting together. Leighton's not innocent in this, and he's not denying it to his own caucus, but he is denying it to we, the voters. Now, Leighton could not have pulled off this deal without dragging Dion into it, who, as a consistently reliable compromiser would be left holding the bag, and of course that's what happened to him, and they all set him up, and the guy was such a moron. <laughs> quote, I'll just say one one other thing about the issue of the bloc, says Layton. Nothing could be better for our country than to have the 50 members who've been elected to separate Quebec to actually help to make Canada a better place, end quote. And this is all on record. You know, It's, it's verbatim. You have to take it for what it is. Now... On Tuesday night of this very week, CBC's Peter Mansbridge interviewed Stephen Harper. And Harper very candidly admitted that he knew that no matter what his throne speech and proposed budget contained, that the opposition was planning to bring him down. And I knew that a long time ago, too. You could hear them. They were talking about it. And don't forget, it was the conservatives, too, who released the tape, so they knew stuff was going on. And they knew it was coming in advance of the vote uh, again, which, which again, I remind you, was passed by the Conservatives with the support of the Liberals. Now, what does this mean? This means that while Dion was publicly supporting Harper's throne speech and then subsequently even voting for it, thereby indicating confidence in the Harper leadership, all the while he's privately plotting with Layton and Doucette behind the scenes. And if this isn't fraud, I don't know what is. To vote one way in the House and then plot overthrow is an act of cowardice unprecedented in any known Canadian politics to me. I don't know, have you you heard of a case like this? And if Harper can't act in accordance with the vote in the House, on what other premise can he operate? Not only can he not now trust what the Liberals are saying, but he can't even trust their vote, and their vote means nothing. And yet repeatedly and loudly... I've heard political analysts, university political professors, talk show hosts, and even so-called conservative supporters proclaim that Harper made a mistake by poking the opposition with the end to political tax funding. Well, I don't think so. Not only was it the right thing to do, it was also the strategic thing to do. Now, put yourself in Harper's shoes. Okay? You're dealing with the Taliban. They are unnegotiable. They will not talk to you. And they're telling you this today. They're even saying it today. Listen to Ignatchev. Holy cow. So it does not matter. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what policies he does or does not advocate. He could have walked in there with an NDP platform and the same thing would have happened. Exactly the same thing. Since it's already irrelevant to the coalition's pre-planned intentions. They were already underway. The liberals had already promised to support the throne speech, which they did. But Harper also knew that a takeover was in the making. So if you're Harper, what would you do? You already know that jackals are getting ready to feed on whatever you give them, okay? So you're going to give them steak and let them savage your intentions and your motivations, or you're going to give them poison and let them expose their intentions and their motivations? And he gave them poison so they could be hoisted by their own petard and they did all the rest themselves. Now, on Wednesday, November 26, 2008, the day before the vote, rumors had already been spreading that the poison bait, you know, that the government would end this $1.75 uh, per vote per year political party allowance, which was introduced by the uh, Liberal government of John Chrétien in 2003. Already, that's up to buck ninety-five thanks to a built-in index for inflation automatic increase. But we'll talk about that later. However, on the same day, the buzz about a proposed coalition was also being rumored. So a day before the vote, the rumors have been spread, the poison trap has been laid, and the blockheads did exactly what Harper and anyone with a modicum of common sense would know fools rush in and boy did they and i've got quotes here from liberal party president douglas ferguson ndp president ann McGrath, liberal finance critic scott bryson liberal party leadership contestant bob ray ndp leader jack layton all of them in tune with this one issue uh, oh my goodness you're cutting our government expenses you're giving you're taking away our money the whole part of the whole point of public financing is to ensure political parties are free of corporate donations oh my all the bull is just flowing, when it's all about them, okay, it's not about the economy, it's not about you, they could care less, and their policies prove it. Now, I said this already, Harper, by this point, had already won the skirmish, it was already over for him, he's just got to play his cards out now, and yes, even before the economic update was read, and even though it still has yet to fully play itself out. And uh, now, locally, I was the first to go public on the very first day the news broke to announce that Harper had just put a majority government in his pocket. To the utter stunned amazement of everyone I told it to, all the so-called experts were wondering and speculating how Harper could possibly recover, and on and on and on. I heard it everywhere and have reams of newspaper clippings that just show you how wacko they think. They're so uh, superficial. And yet, one week later, Polls across the country show that Harper would win a majority, 45%, if a vote were held when the blockhead coalition wanted to vote non-confidence, an opportunity, by the way, which has now been prorogued. Now, on last week's show, also, I was the very first to illustrate at the very moment everyone thought that Harper was fighting for his life while he was sitting with the Governor-General that there's an inherent fallacy in the structure of uh, political coalitions and that the coalition would not survive. And I also said Governor-General had no choice but to give Harper his prorogue of Parliament, and both things were almost done by the time I was off the air. And I also predicted that either Harper would continue to govern with his minority government after the coalition backs down or dissolves, or that Harper will call an election and win his well-deserved majority government. And lest there are some lingering doubts as to the motivations of other coalition supporters, here's a few more just to chew on, okay? Here's Irene Mathis in CJBK, with Steve Garrison, December 3rd. She says, I've got to do this for my constituents. I have to do it because of what the Prime Minister has tried to do to our country. Now get this, not just in the last two weeks, but in the last three years. You hearing that? You going to listen to it? Is anybody going to pay attention to these people? He's rolled the dice, she said. He's gambled with our economy, our people, our future, and blah, 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 okay? Canadian Labour Congress, a hoot. They were already running radio ads a week ago urging us to support the Blockhead Coalition, and they said that Harper lacks vision. Now, what I want to know is, why bother with what the public thinks? The public doesn't get a choice in the matter. It's like advertising, please support abandoning your right to vote, because that's exactly what the Blockheads want. They want to circumvent, as Harper said in his televised video broadcast, our consent and our vote, which you'll hear later. And if we did get a vote, how would it be physically possible to vote for a coalition without that coalition forming a new single party in the House? You can't vote for three parties at once. In fact, you can't even vote for parties per se. You can only vote for one of their fielded candidates. And, uh, you know, one candidate you don't get here is the bloc, so you can't vote for that part of the coalition. You want to hear about teamwork and cooperation? Here's a quote from Ignatieff after Harper invites him to get together right after he gets pointed party leader. Quote, it's a little late to reach out now. Huh? Talk about a cooperative attitude. The guy's not in office. What, 30 seconds? It's already too late? Oh, you should have caught me yesterday? Oh, my goodness, and on and on it goes. I've got some more here from Glenn Pearson, um, you know... Just going on on, talking about how Harper's unethical for pouring, for not failing to pour billions in the bottomless hole. And, uh, oh, man, I could just go on about that for a while. But we do have to take a break now. And um, this time we'll be uh, coming back on the other side. I want to explain exactly how political tax credits work and why this is an important issue, both to you and to the political parties it affects. We'll be taking a break. We'll be back right after this.
4: On October the 14th. For the 40th time since Confederation, Canadians voted in a national general election. We are honored that you returned our government to office with a strengthened mandate to lead this great country through the most difficult global economic crisis in many decades. Even before the government has brought forward its budget, and only seven weeks after a general election, the opposition wants to overturn the results of that election. Instead of an immediate budget, they propose a new coalition, which includes the party in Parliament whose avowed goal is to break up the country. Let me be very clear. Canada's government cannot enter into a power-sharing coalition with a separatist party. And the opposition does not have the democratic right. To impose a coalition with the separatists they promised voters would never happen. The opposition is attempting to impose this deal without your say, without your consent, and without your vote.
0: Are people behind Stéphane Dion's leadership, are they just venting, or is this a serious attempt to say that maybe there needs to be a new leader of the opposition sooner rather than later? Can you give us a sense of that? Well, certainly publicly, we're not hearing a whole lot about uh, people questioning his leadership, with the exception of perhaps one MP. Others say that they are continuing to evaluate what to do, uh, that the coalition remains strong, that they want to meet even into the evening if necessary. Um, but certainly, this was one of the things that was most feared inside this caucus that this could happen, that there could be ramifications, consequences to making such a deal. Um, as I said earlier, Jim Carajanis, at least. At least one MP said that Dion is a disaster. Uh, whether or not that's a, a, an opinion that is being expressed um, uh, throughout caucus inside that meeting right now, I'm not sure. But there is most certainly a discussion going on about Stephen Dion. Remember, he committed to staying on until May, uh, potentially as the Prime Minister of this coalition government, were that to go ahead. But now, because of what's happened, because of the fact that the government has bought itself some time significant time, um, I guess there are questions about how the coalition will hold up, and perhaps more importantly how it will hold up under Stefan Dion, who has um, I think we can all recognize had leadership issues throughout the election and since um, and how will the how will the party maintain that coalition um, given that he is at the helm on the other side on the NDP side I'm being told they are also meeting. Uh, their resolve remains strong. They still want this coalition to happen. Of course, for them, it would be hugely beneficial to see members of um, their caucus inside a cabinet. But right now, things are very much up in the air because we have these weeks ahead. And just to give you an idea of what the government is saying it plans to do over that time, it plans to function normally as a government would. And it is asking for very specific suggestions from the opposition parties about what those parties want to see in a budget. Um, And they say that this is a genuine good faith offer, that they are extending their hand. Whether the opposition parties see it that way is another thing, because certainly um, one of the Liberal MPs coming out of caucus saying that the atmosphere here was poisonous, and if that is the you know if that's the general feeling headed into these discussions, makes it very hard to understand how they could ever come together to reach some sort of agreement here.
3: No kidding, eh? Now, That was uh, CBC News World's Rosemary Barton, and that was actually aired live uh, almost a week ago, well, exactly a week ago today, about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just after Parliament was prorogued and after the Liberal Caucus had a meeting. And Harper immediately, again, extends that olive branch. What do you want to see in the budget? You know, of all the people I've seen criticize Harper for saying this was wrong, that was a bad strategy, blah, 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 not a one, not a one. I'm waiting for one of them, any of them. Tell me what you want to see. You know, Ignatius says, oh, i got to see the numbers. What number? Does he even know what a number is? What, uh, on the economy, does he know what number is the right number? Oh, my God. We're in trouble, folks. Welcome back. I'm Bob Mest. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Haven't got much time left, but you need to know about political parties and how they're funded. When taxpayers are forced to fund political parties, they neither receive a vote within that party nor do they become members of that party. Think about that. Parties work on membership, okay? But they do pay dues, so it's kind of like being in a union, okay? Only you, you don't even get a card saying you're in anything. And uh, as I mentioned last week, political parties are private associations. They don't belong to the government. They don't belong to anybody. They belong to the private individuals who form them. Anybody can form a political party. You can go and register one tomorrow. What does belong to the government uh, is, is a thing called registration. Your party can be registered or not registered. And once you're registered, then you agree to certain sets of rules. You get tax credits and things like that. Now, you have to understand that political parties are conventions. They're based on an abstract division of ideas. A political party can... or interest, I guess... But uh, these are the very things that the Blockhead Coalition insists don't exist, since they think everybody can work together, not recognizing that every individual party is a separate idea, a separate interest, a separate agenda, totally different from the rest, and if they're not, they shouldn't be separate, they shouldn't be sitting there. Glenn Pearson says we should get the best ideas of all the parties demonstrating his obliviousness to the absurdity of good working with evil, right working with wrong, freedom working with totalitarians. You can't do that. This is not ethical. Nor is it the true meaning of of working together, which can only be done through voluntary association and fraternity. Now let's be always clear that together the NDP bloc and liberals can vote down Harper's agenda any time. They're a majority. They can do this any time they want. But to do that would trigger an election under normal circumstances, and that's what they don't want to happen. They don't want you to go to the polls. They know you don't like voting in the first place, so that works to their advantage. But they're too cowardly to face you, too, so that's a double advantage for them, not to mention broke. So, you know, it's perfectly consistent Everything about them is consistent. Look at them. Look how they operate. Look how they act. Look at the state of their finances. Is that how you want your country run? Those are the parties you got to vote for and support. And, you know, oh, it's unbelievable. And wasn't the issue of leadership the issue last election? You know, still today, they're looking around for a leader. They think they might have Ignatyev. He might not be in favor. They don't know. But obviously, the old coalition is already dead. And as far as I'm concerned, I think an election would be great. Now, the only common ground shared by the whole coalition is the issue of party financing, which has only been around since 2003, and uh, which Bob Ray wasted not one minute to let us know that not forcing taxpayers to fund his organization is undemocratic. And it's uh, just amazing. I could go on with the hypocrisy. It's it's, it's almost unbelievable. You couldn't write a, a comedy series like this and expect people to believe it. And, uh, you know, the Blockhead Coalition, they talk about the economy, but tax funding is all what it's about. So the Conservatives, they've got a lot more grassroots and popular support than the other parties, and they can always raise private money and survive quite well, just as parties have been doing all along, with one important proviso: Prior to the tax funding per vote system we're on now, official officially registered parties, who reached a certain percentage of the vote would have a portion of their election expenses reimbursed by taxpayers, yet another undemocratic and illegitimate means of acquiring one's income. And they still do that now, so this is an addition to that. and um, But at least the former subsidy did not put discretionary money into the pockets of political parties. Like I hate the last one, I would never support it, but at least all you got covered was for your expenses that you already incurred and that you submitted, and then they recover a certain percentage, right? And you're still obligated to privately raise funds and finance your party activities outside of the electoral process. But that amount was limited. Uh, the amount paid by the government was limited by the legally limited expense limits on political party spending so it was a kind of a limited thing but now think about this dollar seventy five plus plus which is a buck ninety five now per vote per year for each vote that a party gets it's no longer a thing about expense recovery but of surplus income guaranteed whether a party spends a single cent on electioneering or not they could be banking all this money having holidays going to Florida doing anything they want and it's all legal trust me it's legal the subsidy becomes perpetual and does not end when a party's electoral expenses have been processed and finalized. It turns elections into a revenue-generating proposition for those who reach registered political party status. And interestingly, no independents or new, po- new political party upstarts can possibly take advantage of this. An independent is not a member of a party to begin with, so he's screwed from day one. End of Independent Candidates. And, uh, you know, now all the other parties have a financial incentive to field candidates for the sole purpose of funding their activities without having to pay for them. And so that's what you're dealing with. If you want to know the numbers here, if they like numbers, the annual cut to each party would be uh, $10 million cut from the Conservative Party, which is 37% of their revenues. $4.9 4.9 million from the NDP which is 57% of theirs, 7.7 million from the Liberals which is 63% of their party revenues, 1.8 million from the Greens which is 65% of theirs, and 2.6 million from the Bloc which is 86% of their revenues. And that does not count the other government subsidies they get for their campaigns. It does not count the tax credits. Ah oh. You know, and yet people think, oh, this is our democracy. This is not democracy. No democracy would allow such a thing. And anyone who thinks for a minute that governments should be funding political parties, funding causes, funding, oh, you're not in a democracy. That's not democracy. Never was. That's called a totalitarian state, and you've got to pick up your history and read it. Think about this. You only need a $1,000 deposit to run federally, and that deposit will be returned to you. Okay? So your net expense is now zero. How do you register a political party? Simply submit 250 signed affidavits on a form annually, attesting to membership in your party, and you'll qualify both for tax credits and for a vote subsidy if you get a 2% of the national vote. So, you know, anybody that can pull that off, I remember who, who was it that kind of bought their way in that, uh, that flighty party, The you know, those weird guys that were uh, some kind of mystics, I forget the name of that party. But, uh, you know, the media people are continually saying I'm overstating the significance of this utterly undemocratic principle in our midst, you know. They always think it's just about $30 million annually to the party. Uh, That's not what it's about. Um, This is a profound significance, and this simple change should be taken now while we can. It's the right thing to do. They've only been on this heroin for about five years now, so let's cut off their drug dependency now, because we've got a lot more serious things to look at in our society. And I think uh, if once you haven't got your vote, there's not too much you can do about jobs and dealing with the economy. And that's what we'll be doing right after this break, and we'll be back right after this quick break. First, you'll hear from Stephen Harper, I'll give him the last word on this, and then we'll be back talking about laissez faire and giving jobs. During the past
4: 141 years, political parties have emerged and disappeared, leaders have come and gone, and governments have changed. Constant in every case, however, is the principle that Canada's government has always been chosen by the people. You guys want jobs? When are you going to get it? If there are
1: no jobs. Not for us, anyway. They'll find jobs. They'll have to. After tonight, they won't be able to ignore us anymore.
4: All right. All right. We'll
1: do it your way.
3: Yeah, we'll do it your way. You know, I, I thought it would be apropos at this point to, you know, I've talked about historical Situations in the past where we face the same situation. And one of them, of course, was at the very point of the origin of the term laissez-faire, which you've been hearing bantered around more in this election than in any other. And there is an article that was written by Ayn Rand back in 1962, actually appeared in the Los Angeles Times in August of that year. Uh, A lot of of you may not know, she was a columnist, and she was read uh, right across the country, syndicated. And she did everything from movie reviews to, uh, and which was her basic thing. You, you might, a lot of you might think she was really into this politics thing. No, that wasn't her thing, <laughs> not at all. But here's what she wrote about the term laissez-faire, and this was also written at a time when we were going through another quote economic crisis. And here's what she wrote: quote Since economic growth is today's great problem, and our present administration is to, promising to quote stimulate it, where well, have we heard that before, eh? To achieve general prosperity by ever-wider government controls while spending an unproduced wealth, I wonder how many people know the origin of the term laissez-faire, Ayn Rand asks. France, in the 17th century, was an absolute monarchy. Her system has been described as, quote, absolutism limited by chaos, end quote. The king held total power over everyone's life, work, and property, and only the corruption of government officials gave people a non-official margin of freedom. Louis XIV was an archetypical or an archetypal <laughs> despot, a pretentious mediocrity with a grandiose ambition. His reign is regarded as one of the brilliant periods of French history. He provided the country with a, quote, national goal in the form of long and successful wars. He established France as the leading power in the cultural center of Europe. But national goals cost money, and the fiscal policies of his government led to a chronic state of crisis solved by the immemorial expedient of draining the country through ever-increasing taxation. Colbert, chief advisor of Louis XIV, was one of the early modern statists, he believed that government regulations can create national prosperity and that higher tax revenues can be obtained only from the country's economic growth. So he devoted himself to seeking a general increase in wealth by the encouragement of industry, quote The encouragement consisted of imposing countless government controls and minute regulations that choked business activity. The result was a dismal failure. Colbert was not an enemy of business, no more than is the present administration. Colbert was eager to help fatten the sacrificial victims, and on one historic occasion he asked a group of manufacturers what he could do for the industry. And a manufacturer named Legendre, L-E-G-E-N-D-R-E, answered, quote, Laissez-nous faire, end quote, which means let us alone. Apparently the French businessmen of the 17th century had more courage than their American counterparts of the 20th, and better understanding of economics. They knew that government help to business is just as disastrous as government persecution, and that the only way a government can be of service to national prosperity is by keeping its hands off. End quote. So, you know this lesson has been repeated I, uh, over the show now over the past many many weeks. I've taken you back to the depression of the 1890s to the 1929, to the 70s, now to the absolute monarchy back in in, in Louis XIV's day. It's always the same issue over and over again and our leaders just never learn they just repeat the same pattern it's like the opening clip of the show you know they keep doing the same thing we'll follow similar procedures okay we're going to do similar procedures of the thing that the other ship destroyed themselves with because they put more power to the shields they had to protect themselves what do you protect you know uh, you hear this that's why it's called protectionism by the way because what They're protecting themselves from in in economics is the marketplace. They're protecting themselves from the consumers. You can't put barriers up. You can't put taxes. Tax is just another form of a barrier. You can't print money. You know, for political parties consumed by the prospect of stimulating the economy... Let us remember that no Canadian politician or American or French or whatever can possibly implement any policy that will force consumers, especially American ones with regards to Canada, who buy 90% of Canada's cars and other exports to buy them. You, can't, you, can, you can make as many as you want. You can bail out all the industries you want and fill those parking lots with a zillion cars that will not make Americans and anybody else buy them. And just as with Laissez-Faire in France, where they said, well, every time they did them a favor, it was another control, another oversight, another thing to look at. What, what are they doing in the States? They're creating a car czar. Oh, my God. I, I just about died when I heard that. That's, it's almost, it's laughable. It's laughable. So now these companies, you know, they, they can't use their minds anymore. See, that's what the problem is here so that if they see an innovation or something, they're going to have to go back to Mr. Karzar and explain to him how every invention works and every innovation and everything before they get approval from the Karzar. If you want to work under that kind of restraint and you think that your job is going to be there very long with a company running under a Karzar, oh man, that's just amazing. And politically in Canada, this is an ironic opportunity for the left in this country to once again seize the opportunity to reject an American idea. Why don't they? And yet, you know, they insisted Obama's plan to borrow money, you know, to borrow the country's way out of debt obligates Canada to do so too. How come we're we're not anti American when it comes to doing the stupid things that the United States does? You know, because I think if we do, we'll, we'll find out that Canadian money burns just as well as American money. And what you're seeing burn and all that money they'll spend, whether it's a loan or a guarantee, makes no difference. That's the capital for the future. Your capital that would make your jobs for the future, being liquidated. For current and past expenses, okay, you're not getting that back. These people aren't—they're not, they're not building the future. They're trying to catch up with the past, and that's what—that's where the capital's going. You know, I heard Industry Minister Tony Clement on the radio actually saying, using an interesting word about the car industry. He says over the next five years we're going to see an existential change. <laughs> what a word! Wrong word, but I know what he means, and it's what I was talking about last week. I was saying the car industry's obsolete. They're building cars and factories that are run by a handful of people and robots are making the cars. And you want to guarantee jobs? You can't have it both ways. And I want you to understand, here's, here's the real BS line you're getting from all parties, including Harper, including everybody, because they, they know what we want to hear. They know we want to hear bailout. They know we want to, oh, cry with me, please, tell me, give me some money, blah, 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 guarantee jobs, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You can't have it both ways. If the government tells a company that they have to both guarantee jobs and be viable, that isn't going to work. It's one or the other. And nobody can guarantee jobs. How can they? That's what the government's there for. They're the ones doing the guaranteeing. They're the ones that got the gun. I can't guarantee a customer will buy my car even if it's the best damn buggy and horse whip that they ever made. Just like we talked about last week. If you were listening to the show, a movie you got to see, other people's money. So... If they want them to be a viable company, think of what that means. Do you think it's going to save jobs? No. You want to be a viable company, you're going to have to lay off 80% of your people. If you're going to start being viable, then you've got to go robotics. You've got to go to where the technology is and release that labor for other tasks, which we can't see in our minds now because we never see the future. But if you look in the past, every generation had the same panic, the same worry, and it always came out better than it was before if we don't, Create our own resistance to our own solution. And on the other hand, if you want to guarantee jobs, then you won't have a viable company. Because then you'll be guaranteeing jobs and not guaranteeing products and not making sure that what the product that the company is building is one that needs to be produced. So, you know, it's a no-win situation on the economy, folks, and that's where it is. And I hate to leave you with that note, but the best thing to do, and that's why I keep sticking with it, is a laissez-faire approach. Let the people fix themselves. They can stimulate their own economy with their own money. And that's where we're going to leave you this week. And we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, think right, stay right, and do right. We'll see you then.
0: Fade into color Color into black and white Under the clothes. How many people came down here tonight with somebody that scares the hell out of them at the wheel? You have that... Oh, yeah. You're sitting in that passenger seat trying to keep yourself composed, and all of a sudden you start working that air brake? Whoa! We should have been stopping a long time ago. No matter what the weather's like, they won't use the wipers. You're rolling down the window, wiping off your side. Just want to see what the hell I'm going to hit, that's all. The wipers, you're rolling down the window, wiping off your side. Just want to see what the hell I'm going to hit, that's all.